Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. Bryce Simon is back with me in the building. I am ready. I am ready to talk about basketball. Vacation is over for me. I had a lovely week with Laura, my wife. We stayed in Melbourne. It was great. But now I'm actually in the Gold Coast. I've traveled for work. Uh, I am here for the 2023 NBL Blitz. People may have seen me tweeting last night about games, including Trenton Flowers, Alex Saar, Taron Armstrong, Bobby Clintman, real live 2024 NBA draft prospects. Got a chance to watch them. I'm super excited about it. Uh, We might talk a little bit about a couple of those games at the end. I hope that the internet here is good. I think it will be good. It looks solid as of right now. I hope it stays. Uh, This hotel is good enough to where I think we should be in a good position. Bryce, you're here. What's going on, buddy? How are are you? Sam, it's kind of funny. Uh, We talked on the phone the other day and you were like, actually, we're staying in Melbourne for our vacation. And then we come to record and you're in a hotel room whenever you're not on your vacation anymore. So that seems a little backwards, but it sounded like you and Laura had some good food, had a good time. And you're right, man. It was, uh, I watched that game. We were just talking about it before we recorded. It's nice to get like real up to date 2024 NBA draft basketball to watch. That was really cool to be able to turn one on this morning and watch it. Yeah, it was really good. I mean, it was really good to be there. Like, we'll talk a little bit maybe at the end about that because we'll probably, you and I, will do something a little bit more substantial on this maybe next week when the Blitz ends because the Blitz runs through Friday. I'm here through Wednesday. Um, you know, so I'll have to watch a couple of these games on tape at the end of the day. But I'm really excited. We'll talk about it a little bit more in depth, but we might touch on it a little bit at the end of the show because there's sure. there's actually one guy I want to talk about, and it's not Alex Sar, It's not Bobby Clintman. It's not the not the guys that we're uh, a little bit more familiar with maybe from the 2023 draft cycle or from the Perth Ignite games that we saw recently. Okay, so the calendar for today. We're going to start talking a little bit about the unfortunate incidents that occurred while I was gone uh, last week with Kevin Porter Jr. And I, I don't want to call the Arturio Morris uh, accusation that is still apparently not with the police in Lawrence uh, an incident yet. I think that's probably unfair, but I do think I, we want to talk about it a little bit just in regard to uh, his plea deal that happened last week as well. And whether or not that's qualifying to play at Kansas at the end of the day, uh, we're going to talk then about uh, where is my list here? We've got uh, Damian Lillard trade talks that have been restarted. According to Adrian Wojnarowski, we have a Woj clip. He kind of talked through it a little bit on ESPN uh, and Bryce and I will talk about that afterward. We're going to talk a little bit about the player participation policy that Bobby Marks outlined earlier this week on ESPN. And most importantly noted that throughout this time, I've been assuming that rookie of the year is going to be included within the idea of the game uh, minimums that you have to play in order to be eligible for these awards. But it seems like that's not going to be the case. And that's interesting because Victor Wembanyama and Chad Holmgren probably just got a boost in terms of rookie of the year potential with that being true. We're going to move from there. We're going to talk about the Jared Vanderbilt extension and then maybe a little bit of the blitz at the end. But let's just kind of start with the Kevin Porter Jr. news first. Kevin Porter Jr. is now facing three charges uh, in New York. 
I have the charges in front of me. It looks like he's facing two Class D felonies. Uh, one is an assault. One is for strangulation. Uh, he's also facing a third charge as well that I believe is a Class A misdemeanor. Uh, looking through the uh, registry, at least in New York, as we're talking. He was arrested on Monday, and he was accused in court of, and I'm speaking slowly because I want to get this right in terms of what exactly the Manhattan District Attorney, Mariah Kurzer, said. Uh, He ended up pleading not guilty to these three charges. And according to the District Attorney, uh he was he strangled he strangled her and hit her and she was bleeding and uh originally it seemed like that information came from her based on the reports in the news but then her attorney kaiser uh gondrzik is her name uh she's a former wnba draft pick his or her attorney came out and said uh, statements that were attributed to her were not her words. Um, she says he didn't strike her repeatedly. If he hit her repeatedly, she'd have a broken jaw. And again, this comes from a Fox News report that occurred on September 15th. So two days ago on Friday uh, within the district attorney statement, it was stated that Porter repeatedly punched Gondrzik, causing a gash to her right eye, strangled her, and broke a bone in her neck. Uh, Gondrzik's attorney said his client is particularly frustrated uh, that the complaint says she reported that Porter choked her so hard that she had difficulty breathing. Uh, according to her, she wasn't being strangled. That was an exaggeration. Hantman said to Fox, uh, she doesn't want the public to think that that was, that what was said by the government were her words. Uh, she, uh, Gondrzik hasn't spoken to the district attorney's office yet. According to her lawyer, uh, it was too traumatized and exaggerated because of who he is, but she's not minimizing what happened either. So I hope that that gives a little bit more of a full picture of everything here. Kevin Porter is facing two very serious charges and a third misdemeanor charge. Um, I mean, look, we we have no place for this. And the biggest thing for me is that obviously given some of the discrepancies there between what Gondrzik's attorney is saying and what the district attorney said, I think that it's worth being a little bit patient in terms of all of this information. But at the end of the day, the NBA needs to take a stand on violence against women. And we all need to take a stand about violence against women. And we need to talk about these things when they happen. And again, even though Gondrzik's attorney stated that some of this is exaggerated, she's not minimizing it either. So clearly there was some sort of, you know, alleged incident here. uh, And, we need to be able to talk about it. And if Kevin Porter ends up being 
convicted in any way or accepting a plea deal, in my opinion, in any way, he, he should not be in the NBA, point blank. And, you know, people can say, you know, Miles Bridges in the NBA, whatever. Great. I was pretty clear throughout the summer that I don't think Miles Bridges should be in the NBA. So I'm all for, like, I think second chances are reasonable. I think second chances are fine, but you need to rehabilitate and you need to actually show real contrition and you need to show that you're doing work in order to make amends for what, you know, in some cases you've pled to, in some cases you've been uh, convicted of, and certainly not necessarily in this case on either of those things yet we need to be willing to talk about these things and the NBA needs to take a stronger stand on violence against women, just point blank. Yeah. As you said, second chances, Sam, I wrote it down in my notes because it was something I wanted to, and I believe in second chances as well, but sometimes those second chances can't be with the lifestyle of an NBA player and what comes with that. And so I'm not, you know what I mean? And if Kevin Porter jr. Did what, you, you, are not, are, you are not entitled to take to make millions of dollars exactly. to play in the NBA. Yeah, like I, that is a privilege. Yeah, it, I, I would assume this comes with jail time if convicted. I don't know what that is, and my assumption is it's not life. So he will get a second chance with life. But I'm not saying I, I don't know that he deserves a second chance in the NBA. And yeah. I just want to just from a human side, Sam, like this hits everybody but I talked to you about this a little bit, this, like I have a young daughter. I teach high school. Like I just, I, what you said is perfect because this really hits home with me that I'm going to have a daughter that eventually, you know, be a young woman and these kids that I teach. And I'm just like, they shouldn't be subject to what is accused of happening here. And we do need to talk about it. And the NBA is a large entity that can take a stand and say, this isn't okay. And we're not going to be okay with it. Yeah, that's that is the reality. The NBA needs to be willing to take a stand on these issues, point blank. Uh, and look, this this comes on the team side as well. This isn't just the NBA. People around the league need to be willing to not sign players that you know end up in these circumstances, or that in you know, Miles Bridges' case, plead no contest to uh, the charges that he was facing last year. Team officials need to be held accountable in this regard as well, and they need to hold themselves accountable, in my opinion, as well. And that gets us to the Rockets. And look, like, I get that these are just accusations. I don't want to convict Kevin Porter before he's been convicted. But we are at the point where Kevin Porter was traded from the Cleveland Cavaliers for reasons of being an issue, you know, in some respect in the locker room, seemingly. He had a locker room altercation with John Lucas, uh, if I remember correctly. He... What else is, you know, he had a issue at USC where he was like suspended. He's gotten a number of opportunities here and he continues to end up in these places. And I'm just at the point where if I was the Rockets, I, I wouldn't want Kevin Porter around my very young team anymore. And 
I, I get it. Like, I, I get that, again, you don't want to convict before he's convicted, but I, I'm uh, if I'm the Rockets, I'm trying to move on. And at the end of the day, like, his contract was structured this way in order for these circumstances to be moved on from. Sam, do you think, and I know you, like, can't, uh, it's an unfair question for me to ask you, but do you think they are waiting because they want to trade that report bothered me a little bit, Sam, the whole, well, they want to trade him with assets like, or do you think they're waiting to see what happens here? Because if it's the trading for assets to keep, like, I don't, I don't care. Like that would bother me if you're the Rockets and you're only holding on to like, let this play out a little bit. As you said, maybe there's some patience. I understand that if it's for the trade and whatever, I can't get behind that. You can take a stand right now. They have all the intel or a lot of it. If they're trying to be patient, I get it. But if it's not that, then I don't want to hear about trade to keep the salary stuff or whatever. So uh, I'm a little bit unclear on whether or not the Rockets uh, functionally can release him from his contract, uh, according to the NBA. Uh, I know that Adrian Wojnarowski said something along those lines, that the league does not want him does not want the lead, uh, the Rockets to cut him until the investigation is complete. Okay. Which I, I understand on some level. And I think that with the Rockets, they're probably exploring trade avenues because this could be the most expedient way to get him off of the roster. It could also be a circumstance where they're trying to flag to their fan base. Hey, look, like we're not going to have him on the roster come opening night. You know, when talking about these issues, like I don't really like to dive into the weeds of team building because it's just not essential. But in in this case, I do think it's important to note that, you know, Kevin Porter Jr. gets $2 million more guaranteed on his deals, uh, all of which, which has been widely reported. uh, He starts a four-year contract this season. This year is guaranteed. Next year has a $1 million guarantee uh, currently that jumps up to $3 million on opening night if he's still on the roster. So I I do, I understand that the league probably does not want to set a precedent here in terms of like accusations leading to releases, right? I would at least venture that. I'm not going to sit here and say I know from talking to the league. I I would venture that's probably why. I don't, because his contract is structured this way, where his contract is entirely unique across the NBA, the Rockets structured it like this because he has had issues, nothing resembling this necessarily before, but has had his problems in the past. And... I don't think that this contract being released would set a precedent. Now the Rockets have a month here until opening day, just about. So if they want to get him off the roster as soon as possible, maybe the league told them, let this investigation play out for another month, see what comes of it. And that like, just be in a holding pattern here while we try and gather information on everything. And if that's the case, I'm willing to, give them a little, I'm willing to give the Rockets a little bit of latitude here. The the end result here has to be the Rockets moving on from Kevin Porter. Yeah. Uh, And the other piece of this as well is 
if he does end up being convicted, uh, which is a good ways away, there is a real possibility that his money this year would also be removed from their salary cap and that they would not end up uh, having to pay him and he would not get access to that money, which again, if convicted, certainly should not get that money. I don't know how that process works if he was to be released uh, and that money was already guaranteed. So there are a number of factors here. I get it. Um, at the end of the day, though, like I, I find it a little bit gross that they're going down the process of trading him, but I also can somewhat understand the team building mechanics behind it. I, I just also don't, like, I don't think anybody's going to want him, and I don't think anybody's going to want the, like, going to want to deal with all of this. Because, look, like, the, the other piece of this is that if the Rockets trade him, if the Rockets can't cut him, but they can trade him right now, which is kind of the operating assumption, right, based off of the reporting from Shams, based off of the reporting from Woj, what makes you think that a team, if they acquire him, is going to be able to just cut him immediately? It, it then kind of becomes their problem while the league investigates. And I don't know if anybody's going to want to deal with that either. So, yeah, I mean, Jet says it here a little bit. And I guess this is what I wrote in my notes. Like, like can the NBA not just step in and make some sort of exemption that allows this? And you brought it like you got to let it play out. So maybe I jumped the gun here a little bit. There's also just something that rubs me the wrong way about a team taking on Kevin Porter Jr. and getting assets to take on somebody who, again, to clarify, and we said it multiple times, it's accusations right now. And obviously, if they turn out not to be truthful or whatever, then it, it's a different discussion. But we're working with what we know at this time. That part is what it, that was kind of my point, Sam, is it just rubs me the wrong way yeah. that you have something like this and then a team takes him to acquire at like, it, I don't know. It just rubs me the wrong way. I, I don't know how else to say it, Sam. It just it feels completely wrong. And I just wish there was a more clean cut way to do it. And it maybe there's just too many loopholes and things to get around just saying, no, you don't deserve to be in the league. You're waived, you're cut, whatever. And I just don't understand how that can't be more clean cut if he did what he is accused of having done. So Jet says, as you referenced, if I were the league, I would void his contract. If the NBPA wants to dispute that, they can make a public statement about why Kevin Porter Jr. should get $15 million and see how that plays for them. Undeniably, I think they would dispute it uh, while this is an accusation. The, the collective bargaining agreement is very clear on issues like this and there's just no way to the the i, I while i am a hundred percent against all of this i would not be if i was the nbpa i would understand them contesting this currently at least uh while doing that because there that would lead to a potentially dark uh like rabbit hole of issues for the league so when manage. the investigation is over, Sam, he would have a contract that would allow them to because of the lack of guarantees, right? Well, it's more the 15 this year because the 15 million this year is guaranteed already. The rest of it is not at the end. Look, 
this needs to get done within the next month. My overarching thing here is that within the next month, this contract needs to be off of the NBA's books long-term for the following three years. Uh, How we get there within the next month, I'm willing to play that out a little bit more and understand that. Um, If, like I was, I, I don't know. Like I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to be slightly more patient. My whole thing here is just that the Rockets need to move on. The Rockets need to not bring him to training camp. They need to not have any. He needs to be done with the Rockets, point blank. Uh, now, whether that's a trade where they induce you know teams to take him so they can get a contract back that you know maybe is a useful player, I. Look, I'm with you. I think that's kind of gross. I think that the statement you can make here is just cut him and move on. But yeah, I would I would cut him and move on. Uh, I would not. I, I get I get why they would do it. I if the league is not letting his contract be cut from from the Houston roster, I don't think that they are going to let another team that trades for him just automatically cut him. Uh, so regardless, like if Houston can cut him, I think they should cut him right now. If the NBA, uh, is not letting them cut him, then they're not going to let another team cut him. So a trade doesn't really work that way either because a team is just not going to want to manage this circumstance. I don't think so. I I don't really see the end result for me is that I think he should be waived. And I think that that should be the way that this ends. And I'm willing to take a month for that to happen if that's the case. Okay. And I'm glad you, because that's what, you know, just reading the comment, like, I think both of us are on the same page. We understand the patience right now that the NBA must take, the Rockets may take, and maybe I misconstrued that. But I think we both understand that, that we can't do some of these things while it's accusations. My overriding point was if accusations prove to be true, or whatever you oh, should never play in the nba again correct okay. and it rubs okay. me the wrong way to think of trading him and not yeah. just he's out of it like that idea just kind of struck me as kind of like like just wrong and i didn't like that if it's proven to be true i understand like you've said the patience everyone must take right now i get that yep the second one here that was gross, seriously, like there was a point on like Friday where I was like, I don't want to think about basketball in any way. I find this all absolutely disgusting. And I, I was like pretty annoyed. Um, Kansas men's basketball guard, Arterio Morris has been suspended from Kansas uh, following a rape accusation that was reported to the University of Kansas Police Department according to Shreyas Lada uh, in the Kansas City Star. Morris is not named in the incident report, but a KU athletics official told the Star he has been suspended from the program and we have no further comment. A second source confirmed an allegation had been made against Morris. Now, I don't want to dive into the rape allegation necessarily of this because according to Shreyas he 
this is not yet even with like the Lawrence police department it is currently with like the Kansas university uh, police department. What I do want to say is this. Arterio Morris should never have been on the Kansas campus because Bill Self in Kansas made an active decision to recruit a player that was in the midst of a court case where he was alleged to, and I want to get this wording right as well, he was originally charged with a Class A misdemeanor on allegations that he assaulted an ex-girlfriend. There are certainly details on the internet that you guys can go look up uh, where he was like sending her Snapchats that seemed threatening, according to uh, the ex-girlfriend and all, all of that. Just don't recruit him. Like, I understand if he's already on your roster and you feel like you need to, in some way, shape or form, stand by this person that you have gotten to know and that you have felt like, you know, it is wrongly accused or is this is out of character, whatever. Don't recruit kids that are in the middle of active investigations in court cases when it comes to violence against women. Point blank. This is not hard. Like the the best case scenario here is that Kansas failed to do its due diligence, not because of the rape accusation that occurred according to the Kansas city star, but because he just pled no contest to this thing. And now that is on his record. Like this is the, the best case scenario here is that Kansas did its due diligence and was wrong. And he ended up pleading no contest to this thing. That's not good enough. Point blank. Like that, that is not good enough. And Bill Self deserves criticism there, and Kansas deserves criticism there. The worst case scenario is they knew all of this. And that's not good enough. So I, I just can't Kansas deserves real criticism on this, I think. I think Bill Self's the best coach in college basketball. I think he is uh, an unbelievable basketball mind. He bringing Arterio Morris to campus was a mistake, point blank. And I just want to say real quick to, and I know, you know, talking about roster construction seems not important in light, but to back up what you're saying, Sam, Dewan Harris was always returning. El Marco Jackson committed in mid-October and Nick Timberlake committed on April 19th in the portal. They brought in Arterio Morris after they had all of those guys. So I'm not saying it's okay. Don't get this wrong, but that's even less reason to bring in somebody like that. And you're Kansas on top of that. You can essentially go get anyone you want. I mean, you're, you, yes. you got Hunter and it's, to to me, because it's, it's not okay to me to bring him in under any circumstances. It's especially stupid for Kansas to do this because you have access to any player that you want in the portal yeah. point blank. Like, what are you doing? This it's an unbelievably stupid thing to do this. And again, to me, this is setting aside the rape accusation, which we shouldn't do. But I think that what I think bringing him in on the original court case that he was already actively involved in was a mistake. 
point blank by Kansas here. And I, I just, I, I am, uh, I, I'm flabbergasted by basketball right now uh, with all of this. It, it's, it's not new obviously, but like guys, the, 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 again, the overarching point here to me is that as a basketball community and as men in a basketball community, frankly, we need to be willing to talk about these issues and we need to be willing to stop and like bring our voices up and like with people within basketball decision-making power, just stop bringing these guys in. Like stop, stop doing it. It's not, you can find players that have earned the right here. Like it's, and again, like I get it. Like accusations are accusations and you want to, wait but you know but if you get cleared of the accusations like that's fine do it this was an active decision by kansas to bring this person to the campus not a he was already on campus and was accused of this situation that's the difference for me here with the arterio morris thing and that's what's interesting is not the right word but that's what's i don't know always confuses me i guess to be more is you just hit it there's so much again not to bring it back to the court but there's so much talent that you can get anyway why are you taking chances and put you know putting your program your organization all of that why you're putting your neck on the line for those you know players when these things are going on it 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 just it doesn't make sense. It's confusing to me. And um yeah, I just don't get it. Yeah. No, to to me, him taking a plea deal on that charge uh should be disqualifying from him playing at Kansas, uh, let alone what um has been accused in terms of this rape accusation, according to the Kansas City Star. Uh it's just do people that have decision-making power within basketball do better. That's what I'm asking. Just do better uh, in terms of all of this. Let's take a quick commercial break. Then we're going to talk about uh, Damian Lillard and trade talks being reactivated. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. 
Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, Bryce. Let's talk Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard is still on the Portland Trailblazers in spite of the fact that he asked for a trade uh, a long time ago, I believe in late June, uh, maybe early July at this point. I can't remember off the top of my head. But it's been a long-running story throughout this offseason that Damian Lillard uh, would like to be traded. And it seems like he'd like to be traded to Miami at the very least. Uh, that has not necessarily, I mean, it's been confirmed by multiple people, but you know, Shams, I think said last week that Damian Lillard, like might not even uh, show up if he gets traded to a place like Toronto or something like that. Okay, whatever. Fine. Here's what Adrian Wojnarowski said. Uh, earlier this week regarding where the Damian Lillard trade talks stand and how they seemingly have been reactivated over the course of the last two weeks. Sense is that the Blazers have done a lot more talking with teams in the last, say, 10 to 14 days than they did probably in at least a month plus prior. And a big part of that is, you know, the league is back to work now after Labor Day. Uh, and training camp is starting to approach. And that's the next real deadline um, in this process. But I think Portland, what they've been trying to do is see how they can put together multi-team deals uh, Mm -hmm. that would get them the assets that they would want, draft picks, young players. There might be a team, you know, that their best asset is a veteran player that doesn't interest the Blazers. But there's a third team who might want to take on that veteran and then send, whether it's a young player or Uh, picks uh, in part to Portland. So I think they've been in communication with a lot of teams trying to find a structure of a deal that can get them a Damian Lillard trade. You know, we'll see now uh, how much traction they can get between now and the start of camp. Okay. So that was Woj on ESPN uh, earlier this weekend, explaining where the Lillard talks stand. To me, that's always been where this is going to go, right? It has to be a multi-team construction in some respect to me, because I don't know if Portland has, even if Tyler Hero is involved, which there have been differing reports on if that's a thing, if that's not a thing, right? To me, it's always made more sense to move Hero onto a third team at the end of the day. So 
I went through, I broke down all of the Damian Lillard trade talks and market and everything on a podcast earlier this month. If you want to know where it all stands, you can go there. My take at that time, though, to shorten it to a 20-second blurb here, is that Miami still made the most sense to me because I think Miami is the team that A, Damian Lillard wants to go to, and B, they are actually like truly incentivized to offer just about everything that they have. Uh, because they have Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, and because they are an organization that has found ways to get their depth uh, to a place where it's workable, even if they have three max level guys like Lillard, Butler, and Bam. I- I've always thought this ends with Miami. Did you feel any differently now that the Lillard talks have kind of reignited? No, I mean, it was fun there for a while to send what Lillard to the Sixers, Harden to the Clippers, (laughs) and then the Blazers got everything else that could possibly be involved in that deal. There's just, there's way too much being talked about with Miami for it not, and it's dragged on for so long. You never hear anybody else's name brought up. Yeah, I think I saw something with the Oklahoma City Thunder. I feel like they're always thrown around just because it's the Thunder and they have so many assets, but. You know, and I've listened to so many podcasts, and so, including this one. Sam, I feel like Miami can put together a decent deal, especially if they are allowed, or not allowed, but are able to find a destination for Tyler Hero. Surely Tyler Hero gets a first-round pick, right? Uh, I think, look, I think Hero would get real value. Tyler Hero is a good NBA player at the very least, and he's shown playoff success previously as well which is something with smaller guards that you can kind of you know question going into the playoffs heroes rookie season particularly was absolutely outstanding in the playoffs so I think it's workable to make a Miami Heat trade at the end of the day they have Jaime Jaquez they have Nikola Jovic they have uh, whatever you can get for hero potentially. Now I get that Miami felt like they should maybe play hardball early in the season, but the, the reason this is coming to a head now is the training camp is coming, right? And Portland needs to make an active decision here on whether or not they want to go into training camp with Damian Lillard. And to me, that that's a very complicated decision especially in light of the player participation policy that we will talk about in a second here, particularly in regard to the rookie of the year stuff. But like based off of this player participation policy, at least as far as I can tell, like they would get fined to send Damian Lillard home while they try and work on a trade for Lillard. Right. So you're going to have a guy in Lillard that frankly probably will end up having to play on your roster. And Lillard's like a gamer. He's a dude. Like I can't imagine him coming in and being like wholly unprofessional in the way that he approaches things. But I also do wonder if like a, the training camp deadline is hitting and B the player participation policy of it all is making this a little bit more complicated than meets the eye. How do they decide if Damian Lillard's not playing or the, like that's just based off what the Blazers say, or if the Blazers send him home, like how, how is the league going to decide it it all just falls back on the team? Is this how this is going to work? I know we're kind of transitioning into this, but 
if Kawhi Leonard doesn't play a game, it falls on the Clippers no matter what? Is that – it always falls on the team? Unless it's an injury. Uh, like, they, I think that the the team has to showcase that there is a real injury at play. And the Kawhi thing is going to be fascinating to me for a number of reasons because I, I just don't totally understand how that's going to – how it's going to work. And we'll talk about that momentarily, but like to get to the Lillard thing here, I like, I, I don't know if they can send him home like to do this based off of this player participation policy. So if so, Damian Lillard is on the roster, but yeah. they want to give scoots starting, you know, they can't sit him or else they're getting fined. Oh, they, they can, they, they have to can, play in, start scoot i think and like bring lillard off the bench if they want to but like he because has to Lill- play. as far as i can tell like based on the fact that like the league has implemented this based on uh like all star like they've created a definition for like what exactly constitutes like an all-star player and like lillard fits into that paradigm so I, I'm a, I'm a little bit confused on how that would work like in practicality. Like if like if Chicago wanted to sit like Nikola Vucevic, by the way, who falls into this like star category because he made those two all-star games a minute ago, like let's say his defense would fall off of a cliff for some reason. Could could you sit him? Like I, like say that like you wanted to like bench him for a game because like his and look I, I'm I don't I think Vucevic is good enough defensively to where it's fine but like if you wanted to like sit him for a game because you had to and it was like a road game and it was a national TV game and you felt like his defensive he was defensive liability and you needed him to like see the court like can he can you do that with him. What happens when it, one of these guys falls off a cliff mid-season, Sam, and you just don't want to play him the rest of the year? You get fined for 30 games because some dude can't play anymore? Yeah, what, I'm, what, I'm confused. What's the, what's the qualifications? How far back does it – so, like, Kevin Love was setting games for the Cavs, right, before they eventually – like, and then I know he went to Miami and played, but what? What? how far back do the all-star appearances have to go? Yeah, so surely someone like that isn't involved in this anymore. Like his are far enough away that the the star criteria love is not currently listed in the star criteria. I do know that. Um it's defined as a player that has been an all-star or been on an all-NBA team in any of the previous 3 seasons. Okay. okay. So that is broad enough to where I think it's like workable, but like Mike, Mike Conley is on this list and Mike Conley is, you know, uh, I love Mike Conley, but he's 35 years old, right? Mike actually fits into the other piece of this where uh, I think that he can get a, uh, some sort of like write off because he's play, he's 35 and has played like a certain number of minutes, but to, to bring this back to Lillard, I, I just I, I wonder if this is playing a part in this. They don't want to bring him to camp and don't want to have to manage all of the things that come with this, like you know, 
participation policy and they don't want to deal with like everything that comes with bringing Lillard to camp and like the will they won't they trade him kind of thing it's complicated I think yeah and I just I think it's going to happen I I do I think the Blazers eventually they got to feel pretty good about where they're at with some young talent right getting Scoo you have Shaden Sharp I'm a little interested nobody talks about this and maybe nobody cares maybe it's not that big do they get the heat to take Nurkic do they have yeah. any reason to keep Nurkic? Do they find a is, third team to take Nurkic? Here's is that a thing that is like holding this up potentially as well? I know Jeremy Grant can't be traded right now, but as part of that, but like, what do they do with him eventually? And what yeah. is the return on that contract? You know, he got paid this summer. And I think Jeremy Grant's a really good player, you know, probably a fourth option on a really good team. And I watch him a lot of years with the Pistons, but, you know, or a couple of years. What eventually happens with him? Because he doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense with where this team is going to go either. So I, I find myself wondering about a couple of those guys along with what happens with Damian Lillard. Yeah, no, I do too, for sure. The interesting piece of this that people picked up on during the Colorado, Colorado <laughs> State game, including you, you texted me while I was at uh, the gym yesterday that Kyle Lowry and Chauncey Billups were seen in that box together. Uh, Chauncey, you know, went to Colorado, obviously. So uh, that's the connection in terms of him being in that box. And then, uh, you know, Kyle Lowry's contract is certainly usable in a potential Damian Lillard deal that does not involve Tyler Hero. So (laughs) hilarious in a number of respects that that was there. Uh, Look, do you think this happens before uh, training camp at this point? Yeah, I do. I I feel like things have just slowed down. And I think, as Woj said, we're going to get closer and closer to training camp. And it just makes sense. And as somebody in the comments says here, this the funniest part of that, Sam, was they show them. You can tell somebody tells them that the cameras have gone to them. And the announcers already said Chauncey and Kyle Lowry. And Chauncey immediately stands up and walks off screen. And it was just like, you know, I don't know if somebody messed up and put them on camera and they weren't supposed to or whatever it was. Um, But and and real quick, just antidote here. Chauncey at Colorado versus KU was the first college game I ever saw in my entire life. My my mom surprised me. We went to the game and I, I, if my recollection is correct, I was young. I think Colorado beat them that that game. Like it was like a two point game or something. But first college game I ever watched, Chauncey Billups versus Kansas uh, in Boulder. Kansas resident Bryce Simon coming through again um I think this should happen yes whether or not it will I I don't know I I, if you made me say I think I would say yes and and I think it's Miami and I think it's a multi-team deal I, I will at least throw out a like insane idea so like yes let's do it the Giannis stuff has been percolating, let's call it. And I want to be clear with Bucks fans. He did this last time. Like he said, like, as long as the team is, you know, on a track record or a track to winning and I feel like it's the best place for me to win, like I plan to stay. People read into these like trial balloons last time and they typically read too much into these trial balloons. I do wonder if this time is a little bit different given the team's a little bit older now and he is on the younger end of that spectrum. And 
it might not make the most sense for him to stay after this contract ends up expiring. What if you got Damian Lillard to Milwaukee? My insane idea was something like a four-team deal where it's Lillard to the Bucks, Drew Holiday to the Warriors, <laughs> Ben Simmons, Jonathan Kaminga, Moses Moody, Marjan Beauchamp, basically like three picks, what, however many picks you feel like uh, these teams need to do. And I sent one from the Warriors, one from the Nets, one from the Bucks to do this. And then Chris Paul and Grayson Allen to the Nets. So the, the idea here for each team, right? The Bucks get Damian Lillard and they do so while giving up Chris Paul, Marjan Beauchamp, uh, Grayson Allen in a first round pick. Is Damian Lillard like a guy that makes Giannis go, I want to stay? Is that like a real possibility? Because if it is more so than Drew, and if you feel like Drew is like a, or Lillard is a substantial upgrade over Drew, and I think he is still for what it's worth. I love Drew, but I do think he is. That is an interesting idea. If you're the Warriors here, what is the one thing that you need more than anything else? If you're Golden State, perimeter defender because Clay doesn't do it anymore. You need a great perimeter defender who can also run the second unit. And in doing that, you get Drew Holiday, who ticks every box. Like with Drew Holiday, Stephen Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, Kevon Looney, et cetera, et cetera. Andrew Wiggins as well, certainly. I think that team's the favorite to win the title at that point, even above the Bucks. That's my opinion. Whether or not anybody agrees with that, I don't know. But I think that they would be the favorite to win the title. Why do the Nets get involved in this deal? The Nets would be getting off of those two years of the Ben Simmons deal, picking up this Chris Paul deal, essentially like getting an expiring deal to be able to like go out and hit free agency again next summer and only doing it really at the cost of one first round pick that that's like a pretty good deal for them I think and you can like lottery protect it you can do you know you, you can top three protect it top five protect it whatever you want to do with it but if you only have to pay one first rounder to get off of the Ben Simmons deal that's a win for them and I think you could probably move Chris Paul somewhere else and like that sucks for Chris Paul who's still a really good player but to me, that's like pretty valuable for them. And I think they could use another shooter. They have the defensive infrastructure to actually make Grayson work in like a pretty reasonable way, I think. And then for the Blazers is getting Kuminga, Moody, Beauchamp, three firsts, whatever you need to get for, uh, you know, pick value better than what you would get from Miami. I like the players better. I think I'd have to be able to compare the picks because all the Miami picks are going to be Miami pick. Miami has like three of their own first they could trade. I think it's like two and a swap or something. A swap. They they might be able to like involve uh, who who has one of the teams has their pick. Somebody has theirs. 
it might be Oklahoma City, and you might be able to like, move up, like maneuver around. I, I think if you made to get it to three, yeah, if you if you got OKC to take it a certain year, maybe to three, I, yeah, because there's a weird thing where because it could be this year, or this year, yeah. I like Moses Moody, man. I think he's a good player. I like. I still am a Kaminga so believer. Okay, can I, can I pop a balloon in this? And I want to see what your answer to this part is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when you first started this, I thought you were going to move Middleton and a bunch of assets, and so you could still have Drew and Dame together. You shipped out Drew and Grayson. Are you just banking on Giannis and Brooke being so good defensively that it doesn't matter that you don't yeah, have any perimeter defense there? Okay. Because I'm of. like, yeah, who's the point of attack defender left on that roster? Yeah, I mean, look, it's not optimal. They just lost Javon Carter as well. Uh, but oh, yeah. to me, you can you can go find defenders. I think like the the NBA has shown us that you can go find defenders if you want. Um, the the one the piece of it that I'm not sure would happen is Golden State. I don't know if Golden State would give up all of those dudes in a pick uh, plus Chris Paul to get Drew Holiday, right? that's that's the one even though i think drew holiday is like literally the perfect fit for everything that the warriors need i'm not sure that front office would necessarily do that but to me like it ticks the box of getting portland a better package than the miami package it ticks the box of maybe like convincing Giannis to stay for milwaukee and you get damian lillard for milwaukee uh and then for Brooklyn, you get Ben Simmons off the books and you only have to do it at the cost of one first round pick. And you might be able to get part of that pick value back by moving Chris Paul onto another team. So like, to me, that's a deal that like lines up pretty interestingly, at least in a way that I haven't yet seen a four team like psycho deal that like I just created uh, come to fruition yet. I just was hoping you were going to pair Damian Lillard and Drew in the backcourt together. And I just, I, I don't, I don't well, think here's, that. Here's the thing. You can't move Chris Middleton right now because he just signed the deal. Oh, okay. Cause that's what I was trying to put that together. Cause the bucks have some in between Beauchamp, Andre. I, I like Andre Jackson, Chris Livingston, but they don't have any picks. Like they can't put, they just don't have the, it, it almost has to be Drew. I mean, and I know like practically it has to be Drew. Cause like you said, you can't move Chris, but like Chris doesn't hold the same trade value that Drew does. Yeah, I don't think. Would you agree? I don't think it's. I don't coming, think so. Coming yeah. off what Chris was last year, so I, I would wonder, what if Chris doesn't return to form at all, and Dame and Giannis just aren't enough. But those are two really good players. That'd be fun. Yeah, I mean, I think that Dame was still like a top 12 player in the league last year or so. And Giannis, and Giannis is top three. Yeah, as I said, I think I would have voted for him for MVP last year. So like I'm still there. I will say on Chris, in the five playoff games against Miami, like he was in no way, shape or form the problem. Like he averaged 24 on 47, 40, 87, like shooting splits, averaged six rebounds and six assists. By the end of the year, he was like after the injury and like he recovered, he was pretty close to being back to what Chris Middleton is. 
Yeah, maybe I'm probably being too hard, right? Like I'm probably underestimating. And you're asking Chris Middleton to be the third on a team that also has Brooke Lopez, who's a very good player. And so there's some nights other guys, you know, Bobby Portis, I think is, I don't know, maybe he's not under, I think Bobby Portis is a really good player. I think he's a really good NBA player. Um, And so, and like you said, there's some, I wanted to talk about this from the Heat perspective. If they made the trade, it's the same idea with the Bucks, though. You know, there are a few guys, I think. I think these guys are deciding not to sign anybody, waiting for Damian Lillard to be traded so they can sign with the Heat. Uh, I I assume that's what somebody like Kelly Oubre is doing, is just waiting to see Maybe. if he can sign on with the Heat. So I think there's a few guys left out there. And we saw the the Suns do it, right? I, I, I obviously listened to Game Theory. You guys went through the Suns over-under the other day, and it's like everybody said, how are they going to round out the roster? Well, they did it. Now it would be harder to do right now, though, right? Harder Sam, to that, do right now. That's what makes any of these things tough. Is you make that trade, it's not the same level of guys left, and the same number of guys left to round out the roster to to make it perfect. But Giannis makes up for a lot of deficiencies if you just got a piece of guy here and there. I think that's the big key. I think Giannis makes up for all of the deficiencies, and I think it's just interesting. Look, that deal is like never going to happen. Yeah, uh, you know, n- never in a million years is that going to be a thing. I don't think, but it's the one that makes the most sense to me, at least. Um, so, he, he, whether that happens or not, though, so I've been thinking a lot about as somebody who does piston stuff. I've been thinking about okay. Could this really happen with the, you know, I just look at division teams and what's kind of happening with them. The Bulls could all of a sudden blow this thing up at any time. And Giannis is, and so I'm looking at how fast can the Pistons rise? That's where my mind went with, with the Giannis thing. Is it crazy to think that the Bucks shouldn't be looking at doing something like this? Because like you said, you can't lose Giannis. You can't. And so if Damian coming to town keeps Giannis, that's just added bonus to, you know, motivation to do something like that, even if it's a you got to overpay a little bit or it's a little bit of a chance. If it increases the chance of Giannis staying, it's worth it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, I, look, I, I I think that again, I don't really want to dive into like the Giannis leaving stuff because I know that that's been like a story because he went on that podcast and everything and gave the quotes that he typically gives in these circumstances, but. Yeah, I mean, if I'm Milwaukee, it's the one thing you have to avoid. It's truly the one thing you have to avoid is him leaving. And if you can find a way to stop him from leaving, you have to do it. You have to stop him from going anywhere. And you know, the Bucks will have better information on that than I do, certainly. So if he's a real you know threat to leave, then you have to figure it out. But that that's that's where I'm at. I think this ends with Miami. I do. Yeah. There's not another t- like what's the other team cuz he's got to go to a contender, right? He, that he's going that's to a contender. The, that that's the only way it makes sense to take his contract on as well. Like forget what Damian wants for a second here. Only contenders should be trying to do this. So, just based on the fact that he's a 33-year-old point guard who is on this enormous contract moving forward, like you, you have to be contending in these next 2 years. That has to be your window. Uh, because as much as I respect Damian Lillard's work ethic, you just don't know what's going to happen with the body, and it's an enormous risk to take on with that contract uh, that is all guaranteed, whereas somebody like Chris Paul's contract had like all of the breaks in place to where you know you have get-out-of-jail-free cards if you have to use them, right? So 
I think that Miami still makes the most sense to me. It's always made the most sense to me. Um, I, I tried to do that experiment a month ago where like, if I removed Damian Lillard's thoughts on the matter, who makes the most sense? I still think the Bucks make sense. I think that Miami makes a ton of sense. I think you could say like maybe Toronto makes some sense, but like, I, I, if I'm Miami, I'm offering just about everything. And if I'm Toronto and I don't really know a ton about where my trajectory is moving forward, I don't know if I offer everything. So even though Toronto has more assets, I don't know if you offer everything. Well, and to go back to what you said at the beginning, because I kind of outlined this, depending on who gets moved, but you end up with Dame, Hero, Butler, Martin, Adebayo. It's pretty thin after that, to be honest with you, Sam, depending on what they do with like Kamehakez and, and all of that. But is there a team better than the Miami Heat at finding guys that can fill in those spots, especially this time of the year? And so, you know, of yeah. all of those, of all these teams, it's like, you said it. they're the team you trust the most to fill it out around them and make it work. Yep. No, that's right. Uh, let, let's talk about this player participation policy just a little bit more while we're here. Bobby Marks outlined this entire thing. It, the whole goal for the NBA is to curb load management. And I, I think it's probably a little overreaching if I'm being completely honest. The, the rules here are, are that no more than one star player is unavailable for the same game. So, you know, Bobby brings up this idea of like, if the Celtics, uh, you know, want to rest Jason Tatum, that means Jalen Brown has to play if Jalen Brown is healthy. Uh, The second one is teams have to ensure that star players are available for national TV and in-season tournament games. The third one is that teams must maintain a balance between the number of one-game absences for a star player in home games and road games with a preference for those absences to happen in home games. So basically, your home fans get to see them you know, 41 times a year and your uh, road fans get to see them once or twice a year, so you need to really prioritize those. Teams must refrain from any long-term shutdown or near shutdown when a star player stops participating in games or plays in a materially reduced role in circumstances affecting the integrity of the game. That is where the Lillard piece of this comes into play for me. I think that that is... uh, Trying to legislate that seems like such a can of worms to me and trying to figure out what exactly that means. I truly do not know. Uh... Number five, teams must ensure that healthy players resting for a game are present and visible to fans. So, like, they basically just have to show up. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. Like, there's a group of 46 players right now that would be impacted by this rule. Uh, Hilariously, one guy that's impacted by this rule is Ben Simmons. And, like what is Ben Simmons is like injury status is always a real open question to me. Uh, what is there? It feels like teams are going to have to get very specific on what guys are hurt and what guys are not hurt. And that feels like a real can of worms again. Uh, what is hurt? What is not hurt? I, I, I truly don't know. Uh, 
the other piece of this is that the NBA recently introduced a minimum games played requirement for all players to be eligible for certain league honors. Uh, those honors are MVP and all NBA team defensive player of the year and all defense team or most improved players, uh, most improved player. A player must satisfy at least one of the following two criteria. He has to play in at least 65 regular season games or the player played in at least 62 regular season games, suffered a season ending injury and played in at least 85% of the regular season games played by his team prior to the player suffering said injury. Uh, that is again, just like kind of a can of worms. Uh, the, the way, the reason they did this, I think was to account for what Jaron Jackson uh, did last year. Jaron Jackson played 63 games Um but like because he missed the early portion of the season as opposed to the later portion of the season, he still wouldn't have been eligible to win defensive player of the year. So like, why are you legislating missing like the back end of the season versus the front half of the season? I don't totally know. I don't think that that makes a lot of sense to me. This whole thing feels like a weird can of worms that I, I don't know that the league should want to try and like step into that's kind of where I'm at. And I feel Sam, like I'm being insensitive to fans and the product, but I just find myself like, I, I don't want to say I don't care, but if the Clippers want to rest Kawhi <laughs> and Paul George, then rest Kawhi and Paul George. It's not working. They haven't, they haven't wanted to, it's not working. And if it does work, then they did the, I, I don't know. I just, I want to let organizations decide what's best for their players because you know what I've learned? And I didn't play at a level near the NBA, Sam, but I played at a pretty high level. Nobody knows what's really going on unless you're in the locker room, in the training room, in the facility, and you don't know what a player does or does not need. I mean, we all need rest at some time, right? Like we truly do. Yeah. And I realize it's gotten out of hand. I realize it sucks when you buy tickets for your five-year-old son and it's the one time that, you know, they play in Denver and, you know, you're going to get a chance to see LeBron. I get it. I truly do. But I – it is what it is, I guess. It's kind of how I feel. And, you know, I'm – I'm one of those, like, I practice every day. I played every game till I tore my ACL. I never missed a game. I never missed a practice. But like it's still, even with that said, it, it it doesn't bother me, I guess, as much as it does. Maybe it should. Maybe it should. I, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me why it should bother me and why this is right. Uh, maybe I'm way off base here. So uh, I'm I'm in the middle, I guess. Like, which is not typically where I want to be. Um, I get trying to do this in order to placate fans and like. Also, I think that they're just trying to like kill the narrative on this in some respect, right? Like, I think they're trying to stop people from always being like, oh, these NBA players, they don't care about the fans. They don't care about, you know, this and that. They just want to get their money. Like, it's all bullshit. But I think the part of this is probably in respect to that, at least, or trying to stop that from happening. It just feels like a bit of an overcomplication, maybe, 
to me to try and like implement this. So like, for instance, the, the example that Bobby Marks brings up in regard to teams must maintain balance between the number of one game absences for a star player in home and road games. Like last season, Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green all played in a home loss to the Indiana Pacers on December 5th. Then all three were rested for a road loss to the Utah Jazz two nights later. Uh, under the new rules, Golden State would have been investigated and likely fined in that circumstance. I, I get it that it's unfair to Utah fans that their team plays at elevation and same for Denver, right? Uh, I don't want to single out Utah fans necessarily, but like that's like a strategic decision by Golden State. We have a better chance to win this Indiana game if we play all of our guys. Why would we not do that? I guess. And, you know, maybe, maybe that is it. Maybe they want to try and like make it fair for everybody by doing this in some respect. It just feels, I want to see players play. Like I'm with it. I I just hope that we don't see an increase in injury because of this is where I'm at. Like, I, I, I hope that we don't see guys like Kawhi Leonard, not healthy for the playoffs because the league said that he had to play X number of games uh, during the season. So that's what we're talking about. The one game in Utah or Denver, Detroit or wherever, right? What happens? How much worse is missing Steph Curry for 60 games because he got injured and he is an older player that may need a rest. And you're right to me. It's strategy as coaches. We make these decisions all the time, Sam. I have a player that gets hurt or is worn down or I'm coaching football right now. As I told you the other day, we have a, you know, a fullback who we're giving the ball 40 times a game, but we're playing a team that's not very good. Okay. Maybe we don't play him that game because he's been beat up a little bit or like it's part of the strategy of all of this. And again, I realize the fans kind of get the raw end of it, but I don't want to take away from the strategicness of it as well. I kind of like that. I, I think it's interesting. I, again, I cover the Pistons. You see a team come to town and they set all their stars and it's like, okay, can Detroit take care of business tonight? Can they get a win? Or, you know, was that team able to navigate this correctly in the past? They've navigated it correctly. I hopefully this year, that won't be the case with a healthy Cade Cunningham, but yeah. you know, I just, I don't want to take away from that strategy because I think it's real. And there has to be have you ever have you talked to anybody about the science behind some of this of the rest cuz i know people will say well back in the day everybody played 82 back in the day everybody played 82 but well the, the, it's it's not applicable because the game is just so much more physical now than it was yes. then and like taxing on bodies and much more explosive people can talk about like oh you used to be able to hand check and you used to be able to do this and that Sure, I guess, but like the acts that get you hurt are like the explosive ones, whereas like general athleticism has improved, uh, those acts become more dangerous. And to me, I I just can't, I I just hope that guys stay healthy. To me, the the better option is shortening, shortening the season down to like 72 games. Instead of 82, you still have all of the TV uh, infrastructure that you need, all of the games that you need to be able to have, you know, five nights a week where you have multiple double headers, right? 
it, it just feels like that's a real outcome given that the league is much more dependent on TV revenue now than it is on like exhibition revenue uh, from actually having fans in the stands and everything. Not to say that that's not important. It is, but I, I just feel like doing 72 makes a lot more sense to me than this. So uh, again, a comment here about, yeah, if you quit caring about the fans, they'll stop showing up. Well that yet, yeah, then you'll put the pressure on the organization to play dude. Like, to me, like there's going to be a yeah. turnabout where fan, you know, eventually they have to say, Hey, we got to play you tonight or we have to do this. You know, it, it just, it happens. It's cyclical in that way. I'm with you. I think shortening the season puts pressure for guys to play more games and to win more games to get into the play. Like the play in almost again, listen, you know, talking about the Warriors not caring about home court or this team not caring about home court and the play in, like it's almost made things for some teams a little easier to not care about the regular season because they just want to get into the playoffs healthy and ready to go. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the five key objectives that the league is trying to achieve, uh, they want greater player participation in the full season. They're minimizing uh, multiple star absences in the same game, prioritize national TV and in-season tournament games, improve fan and public perception, and promote compliance via bright line rules and higher penalties. Uh, Bobby also brings up this idea of there being a transparency factor in regards to gambling. The NBA is projected to receive $167 million in revenue from casinos and betting, which is an 11% increase from last season. That $167 million, that's, you know, league and players split that 50-50. That'd be, you know, what, $83.5 million. Uh, you know, $83.5 million divided by three is you know, or divided by 30 is 2.6, 2.7 million dollars, just about 2.7, 2.8, like added to the salary cap every year. So that's real player. That's my real money going into the players' pockets. That's valuable for sure. Um, yeah, it, it just, it feels like doing bright red rules is like not what I would like to see here. Cause I just hope that, I hope guys stay healthy. That's what I want. I want guys to stay healthy. Real quick. Cause I know we're, do you think the rest is being pushed by players individually or in general? No. Do you think it's a team strategy? Teams. Okay. Teams. So that, teams, that, teams, teams. And that's where I don't want fans to be mad at players because it's one thing, like as a teacher, if I overgo the amount of days that I'm allotted to miss, right? But if my school, if my boss or whoever your boss is telling you, hey, we want you to go home and rest so you're more productive when you show up, that's completely different. So that's why I wanted to ask that because I think sometimes it's like, well, it's the players that are wanting to do this when it does seem it's the teams and the organization strategy. Okay. Last topic that we want to talk about here is the Jared Vanderbilt extension uh, with the Los Angeles Lakers. Jared Vanderbilt has signed a four-year, $48 million extension that takes him up to the age 29 season. Uh, I want to hold off on Rookie of the Year maybe for next week just because yeah. that feels we're running long here already. Yep. Um, Jared Vanderbilt is still only 24 years old. He has developed into one of the most aggressive, maybe is the best way to put it, uh, defensive players in the league. He's tremendous in help like he is interesting on the ball uh a bit over aggressive at times i think but 
someone who very much can change the tempo and trajectory of a game with his defensive athleticism, length, and motor on the ball. Um, awesome rebounder. Like you can play him in a lot of different lineups. This is the exact kind of chess piece that contending teams always try and lock down. I think this is a great deal for the Lakers. Yeah. I mean, I saw the numbers. I like, this is, this is awesome. This is a great contract. The numbers are essentially 10 and a half, 11 and a half, 12 and a half, 13 and a half player option, 137th cap hit in the NBA in 24, 25. We know that's only going to go down, Sam, as more people get signed. Yep. 31st among power forwards, 50th among all power forwards. He rebounds. Um, it was interesting to read his, you know, we obviously do NBA draft stuff, Sam. And so it's interesting to go back and read some of that. I just happened to go find it. most dominant rebounder in the class handles the ball. Well, no questions about his motor inconsistent score at all three levels. Like that's people got that one, right? That kind of sounds like who Jan- yeah. Jared Vanderbilt is right now. But my thing is those energy guys, like he's definitely an 82 game player, right? My question to you, Sam is, is he a 16 game player in the playoffs? Um, you know, cause his minutes went down each series. So is it just a matchup dependent? What is he in the playoff? And, and it doesn't matter. Like if he's only an 82 game player, this is still an incredible contract. It's below the non-taxpayer mid-level moving forward. So I'm like, that's a great deal for, for this player. Do you yeah. think, do you, how valuable do you think he ends up being in the playoffs over the next two, three, four years? I think that what you said about him being matchup dependent is absolutely right. I think that that's what he is more than anything. But if you're the Lakers and you're trying to contend with LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Austin Reeves, that's your like core trio that you have right now, along with Rui, along with D'Angelo Russell, everybody like that. You need one of these guys and locking him in before he hits unrestricted free agency where it's always hard to say what these guys would get, right? Defense first guys, it feels like it's changing a little bit. Like Matisse Thibel got paid this summer. Grant Williams got paid this summer. Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown got paid this summer. Bruce and Grant are in a different class, in my opinion, uh, in Agreed. comparison to Jared Vanderbilt offensively that allows them to get paid a little bit more. But it, is there a chance that the bottom like kind of fell out of his market? Like if he would hit unrestricted free agency next year? I think maybe the thing that he has in his favor, though, is that he'll only be 25 next year in unrestricted free agency. So I think that you kind of just had to do this deal and keep him locked in place. And oh, by the way, if LeBron retires and Anthony Davis is your, uh, you know, that you have him for four more years and you have to decide on what you want to do with AD long term, you have to move him. I think Jared Vanderbilt's deal is always going to be movable as long as he stays healthy. Like at $12 million per year, as you said, in an ecosystem where the cap is going to continue to rise and move up, this is going to be seen as a really, really good deal. If he shows any improvement offensively, it is an enormous steal. Well, I think what's tough with a guy like Vanderbilt and Bruce Brown would be the con to this or the the pro, I guess, or yeah. the opposite of what I'm about to say, because he went out and got the bag with the Pacers. But I think if you're I hate saying role player, like I, I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but I, you know what I mean with with Vanderbilt, like he plays a very specific role. I think you have to worry a little bit about what your market could be, because essentially 
you probably only want to go to contending teams. Only contending teams want you. And even yep. some of them may not have room for a non-scoring, non-shooting forward slash big. And so your market could be squeezed more than what you realize unless you're willing to do like what Jeremy Grant did when he left Denver to go to Detroit, which was take more money but go play for a bad team because you think you can have a bigger role. I don't think that's Jared Vanderbilt. So in the end, this is probably a good, smart move for him just to take the money with the team that probably values him the most at this point. Mm-hmm. And, man, the Lakers had a – I thought they had a great deadline. It proved to be that with what their record was post-deadline. I thought they had a really good offseason – um, and so I think this was another good deal for them. Well, and the other piece of it for Vanderbilt too, is like, he hasn't been paid yet. Like he got a, I think three year, $12 million deal after his second round contract expired. There's real value in somebody locking in like $50 million. Like that's like literal, like, you know, not just your wealth. That's like generational wealth, like for your next generation as well. Right. Yeah. And he will be 29 at the end of that deal, potentially 28 if he wants to hit restricted player free option. agency yeah. or unrestricted free agency with that player option. He could get another one. But what this deal does is it locks him into real money that like actually really sets him up for life. Like $12 million is people will look at that number and say, that's a crazy amount of money. And of course it is. If you invest it well, you can be in a circumstance where you are extremely well set for life, but he'd be at like basically 17 million throughout the course of his career so far. And like after taxes, that's what like eight and a half, something like that. And I don't know what Jared Vanderbilt's plans are for after his career, but like maybe he doesn't want to like work after his career. Maybe he wants to, you know, do other things. I, I don't know, but it's $17 million. Like you can't not work for the rest of your life. Probably. Uh, like if you are uh, 25 years old and something happens this season where he like tears an ACL or something and it like fundamentally alters the course of his career, 17 million, you know, it's a lot of money. And if you invest it well, like you're in a good position, obviously, but it's not like you're, you're, you know, money-making life is over money either, I don't think. Yeah, and that's what it's it's funny to keep those things in perspective. You know, like Austin Rees was the big talk this summer and the arenas rule obviously kind of screwed him over on what he could have got. And, you know, I, I bet the Spurs are still wishing they would have at least thrown some money at him. But at the end of the day, you know, Austin had barely made any money in two years in the league playing the way he had played. Yeah almost $60 million over four years with a chance to extend after two and, you know, get out after three and all of that. That's still a lot of money when people were talking about like, Oh, maybe he does something crazy and just, you know, doesn't take it or, you know, no, nah, you gotta, you gotta take that because, and yeah. I think Vanderbilt's the same way. Do you bet what, what, the thing is, Sam, what opportunity is Vanderbilt going to have to show any more than what he did this season? I, I don't think he's gonna be able to expand his game any because of, who they have there. He's going to play essentially the same role, which is important. Don't get me wrong, but yep. it's probably better just to lock it in like it is right now. So I, I think he made a good decision probably. And like I said, the, the Lakers are benefactors of that. They have a real, I think they have a really good roster. Like as I was putting this together, I'm just like, man, 
Can I ask you a question about the Lakers backcourt real yeah. quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I think Austin starting and then D'Lo probably or Vincent, whichever. Those three play. Do you think Hood Shafino or Christie is the fourth guard on this team? I think it will be Christie. Okay. Uh, if I think Christie over Hood Shafino is a rookie. Uh, I think what Max showed at Summer League was really impressive in terms of the shooting. And the big thing is that all of Austin, Russell, and Vincent can be primary ball handlers on the court. So you can have more of a wing out there as your fourth guard, if that's what you're looking for. I, I think it's definitely Christie uh, okay. uh, among that duo, at least. Look, like there's also the potential that like they could try some Cam Reddish at the two lineups. Sure. I'm not you know, advocating that necessarily, <laughs> but I think that certainly they could experiment a little bit throughout the course of the season, at least, and, and see what works, what doesn't work. Uh, Demoy Hodge is another guy that's yeah. on a two way for them. That is like an absolutely league. killer defender and will be annoying as hell uh, for teams to play in the G league with the South Bay Lakers. So uh, maybe he could earn some time here or there at some point, but to me, it, I think Christie ends up being the guy that gets the first shot there. No, that makes it. I started to like Jalen Huchifino more and more as I did scouts on him late in the process. I, he was kind of one of the guys I got into later. And I, yeah. I fall for guys who kind of play with this pace that he plays with. I, I just, that's kind of an archetype I fall in love with. And I just really like his game. Yes. Gregory Castillo, Colin Castleton is a very good basketball player. And if things don't work out with a couple of the bigs that they've signed here later in the process. He's a, he's a guy that I think is ready to to provide minutes if necessary. I think so too. I think there's like a non-zero chance. He ends up being like, he ends up filling the specific role that they need more than Christian Wood. Um, Christian Wood's a more talented basketball player than sure. Colin Castleton for sure. But It'll be really, really interesting to see what Castleton brings. I think he's a really, really good uh, defensive prospect at the very least. And, and then obviously Jackson Hayes is another like athlete at the very least who in his third year in New Orleans, like last year was like not awesome, but in the third year, like he was actually pretty okay for them. So maybe he continues to grow and figure some things out on his end. They have a lot of options in the front court. I, I think your question about the backcourt is interesting though. Um, and look, with guys like Jared Vanderbilt and Rui, you can kind of play those guys at the five and like steal those steal minutes with them. You don't want to do that a ton in the regular season necessarily, but I do think that like if you want to run out bench units of Jared Vanderbilt and Christian Wood, and then you have Gabe Vincent at the point of attack, and then you have you know, uh, somebody like an Austin Reeves there in the minutes where both LeBron and AD are off the court, you have like the makings of defensive infrastructure that can work for Christian Wood and you can get the most out of him in a real way. So I, I think that that could, I think that the way this roster is constructed, look, I did over unders uh, this weekend already yep. at the Western conference, the Lakers over, I think it was 48 and a half. Like that was one of my favorite numbers. I think that uh, they're going to be, I think they're going to be really, 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 really good this year. Yeah. I mean, I like the roster and I think you guys 
spoke on it is they can play really big, Sam, but they can do it with enough floor spacing as well. And then as you just alluded to, they can go a little bit smaller. Now, they never get small in the backcourt at all. Like no, almost no matter what you do, I mean, yeah. what your smallest backcourt is if you played Vincent with D'Lo just because he's a little skinnier, like maybe Hood Shafino, but Hood Shafino's a little thick. I mean, I, point being, you never get that small, even if you wanted to yeah. go quote unquote smaller. No, it's a hundred percent right. Like D'Lo is like six, five, like six, yeah, four, six, yeah. five, like, you know, Austin Reeves is six, five, you know, all these dudes, like even Jalen Huchfino is like six five, six six. Like he's a big guy. And I love it. Like going out and getting size, going out and playing with real size, I think is something that, you know, playing skill. Everybody talks about playing small ball. That's not what you want to do. You want to play as big as possible skilled ball uh, is the goal. <laughs> like you want to cover as much ground as you can on the court uh, while maintaining the skill that comes from having quote unquote smaller players out there. So if you can do that, I think you're in an awesome, awesome position moving forward. I, I just looked through the roster real quick here. If there's one thing that makes me a little nervous, the shooting could regress for some guys that it could become problematic. If mm-hmm. Wood doesn't hit, AD, I don't know where that's at. Rui, I don't always trust it. You know, Torian Prince, I think you believe in it, but still like there's enough guys. Somebody just asked too about, you know, Gabe Vincent, you know, does, is there, does it, does the shooting stay with him? That would be my only thing. Like what if, and, and this is where, you know, you're a good team. And when you're saying, what if the shooting doesn't really stick for all of these guys, maybe, maybe spacing becomes an issue, but like that's a what if and causes regression from a few different players. That's right. And here's the other thing I'll say too. like LeBron shot 32% from three last year. He's been a pretty consistent, like 36, 37% guy over the course of the last like seven years, like six years or so. Like you should feel pretty good about what he is going to be able to bring to the table as a shooter in comparison to what he was last year. Um, like Dennis shot 32% from three last year. Like I would expect that Gabe Vincent is no worse of a shooter than what Dennis Schroeder is, is a yeah. shooter at least. So if that's your, if that's your point of comparison, Dennis brings more to the table as like a pick and roll creator and things like that. Like, but I, I think that I, I, to me, what I'm expecting is that they go something like Gabe Vincent, Austin Reeves, um, LeBron AD, and then pick a fifth in terms of the starter could be Jared Vanderbilt, could be uh, Christian Wood in theory. I, I wouldn't do that, but it uh, could be Rui. Uh, and it could be D'Angelo Russell, certainly. Uh, you could play three guards if you wanted to with the two bigs. So, yeah. look, I, I think that all these big signings, to me, when I see it, it says that they're maybe going to try and play AD a little bit less at the five uh, than what they had to last year. But we'll see uh, whether or not that ends up being the case. Sam, I think you should print the game theory skilled big ball t-shirts <laughs> that, that was that skilled, was a, skilled big ball you want to it's i have this conversation with people like i was having it last night when i was out with some people um it, with the nbl like the goal is to stay as big as possible while having as much skill on the court as possible like have as mo- the better way to put it is having as much ground coverage defensively as you can while also having the requisite skill offensively and most of the time ground coverage comes with you know, having uh, size out there. 
like Alex Sar, for instance, and maybe that's where we'll transition uh, into the final thing we want to talk about just very briefly. You just perked me up here, Sam. You know, yeah. my guy. We're going to talk a little bit more about Alex Sar later next week, probably I, during I our breakdown of what we've seen from NBL guys. Uh, I also want to like pull some tape on Alex because yep. what I've seen from Alex uh, defensively has just been like astounding to me. Seeing him in person as well as I saw yesterday, as scouts saw, you know, yesterday and with the Ignite series, he is enormous and he moves like his functionality as an athlete is unlike anything I've seen uh, in a while, at least uh, defensively. Like it, his his rotational instincts, like his reactivity mixed with the fluidity mixed with the length he's like seven foot seven foot one with like a seven five wingspan and you feel it like man it's he he's he's something athletically it, it just I, I laugh sam because you say something and i go and look at my notes and i'm like oh my gosh that's the first so this is my third set of notes on alex sar i did my found you know uh surface level deep dive and then the ignite game and then this one first line sam alex sar he just looks massive, but moves extremely well. Like exactly what you just said. And it's, you know, I'm watching on film, not there in person, but he, he just stood out in that way. He just, he looked huge. And then I, I didn't think, I didn't anticipate seeing him guard on the perimeter like he has done. I know that's not who we're trying to talk about right now, but uh, this is my draft crush right now. My early 2024 NBA draft crush is definitely Alex Sar. I wish I would have said, whenever we recorded the last time, I think we asked who we thought could end up being like number one pick or whatever. And I kind of cowered out and just went with Matos and I wanted to say Sar, but that would definitely be my answer today. Yeah. Uh, I, I would have Alex Sar right now in my top three, uh, personally. Uh, look, I had him at number seven or seven, I think. so, seven or yeah. eight uh, coming into the season. And he has been even better than what I anticipated. Gregory Castillo brings up a great name here, like Nick Claxton. I think he's like a little bit more like functional and fluid. Um, he's he's really impressive uh, athletically uh, in a way that Nick also is. Nick might be – Nick's a little stronger right now. That, that's the big thing for me right now with Alex. Like yep. he – is a little bit more of a four than a five right now, uh, at least with like the international game with rebounding being an issue for him a lot of the time. Uh, he just does not necessarily like anchor and box out in the way that you would like to see all the time. But uh, the other thing is that was really noticeable in the game yesterday was Perth also has Keanu Pinder, who did not play in the first uh G League game did play a little bit in the second game. They could play him and Keanu Pinder together. Keanu Pinder is really good. He's mm-hmm. I, I think frankly an NBA caliber player uh and should be in the NBA. He's somebody that, you know, probably six nine, six ten, something like that. So like a little bit undersized as a center, but super athlete. Like he kind of calls out some coverages. Like it was really interesting yesterday. If you go back and you watch what Cairns was trying to do they were trying to get Bryce Cotton onto the weak side corner every single time and if you watch Keanu Pinder 
he was kind of pre-calling it and pre-switching in order to stop that from happening. It's just like little stuff like that. I think I think like teams like Phoenix, teams that need a backup center should really, really look at Keanu Pender uh, as a player that, like I-, I was saying the same thing about Xavier Cooks last year, and I feel somewhat you know justified by what we've seen and by the Wizards signing him. I, I would take the next look at Keanu Pender. Uh, but Pinder and Saar can play together is the big thing. Like Alex Saar is starting to do some really interesting things offensively where he'll like, and this is now turning into like a love fest. We'll do it like with tape <laughs> next time. I promise um, about Alex Saar, but like he's starting to do some really interesting things where like he'll catch at the top of the key and run what's supposed to be like a dribble handoff and he'll reject the dribble handoff and just like pivot and shoot and like find the rhythm in order to knock down that shot, which can be a little bit difficult for bigs to do. Uh, the shot balance needs some work. Like the, I think that like the wrist is like very flexy uh, on the shot in a way that worries me, but I, I'm a, I'm a believer in Alex R in a big, big way. Yeah. I mean, he stretched the floor a little bit in the two games I've watched, which was impressive. And yeah, he had in this game, he had like one, two, three dribbles to his right, spun back over his right shoulder and like a fadeaway jumper in the middle of the lane, soft touch. He ended up missing it. But it was just the idea that someone his age, his size was able to take it back to the strength thing. And this maybe lead us into the guy you wanted to talk about. He had one in transition where Armstrong kind of euroed into him at the rim and backed him off. And then Armstrong finished. Now, Armstrong is a 6'4", 6'5", guard, you know. And so it's not the worst thing, but, you know, that that kind of showed the lack of strength that he would need to really be a true rim protector when Armstrong zeroing into him, getting his shoulder, and then finishing. Yeah, and we should talk about Taron real quick uh, before we talk about the other two guys. Uh, Taron Armstrong is a real NBA prospect. Like, look, it, it, it might be like second round. I'm not going to sit here and say otherwise. His teammate, Bobby Clintman, has like way more tools than what Taryn does. Bobby Clintman is six foot 10 and can shoot and can like dribble. And he made a couple of like really nice dump off passes yesterday. He got to the line a ton in that game yesterday. Um, Bobby Clintman, I think, had a positive game. We'll talk about like some of the negatives in terms of his defense, you know, at a later date. But to me, I thought Taron Armstrong was like he might have been Karen's best player on the court yesterday. Uh, the pure passing and playmaking he had, I think, like seven or eight assists. I swear, I haven't gone through and like rewatched the tape, but I would bet you he had like sixteen or seventeen potential assists. He had two. In, he had two lobs to Clintman that didn't finish. He had one yeah. may have been off. I, you text me that before I watched it, Sam, it, you know, about Armstrong. And I was like, okay, like, w- where's Sam going with this? This isn't the guy that I've done. He's impressive. And I told you before we record, I'm kind of, as a, I don't know, maybe this is a coach in me. Maybe everybody does this, but I love dudes who rebound out of position, chase rebounds, rebound, you know, out of, or like can read the ball off the rim. I guess is what mm-hmm. I'm trying. He anticipates where shots are going to miss and is able to attack them. Maybe the best of any perimeter guy I've scouted so far, you know, and I haven't watched all these guys full game. I was really impressed with the rebounding equally as I was impressed by the decision-making passing and like high level basketball feel. It's one of those things too, where like, if you are courtside 
watching him and he gets a rebound and like grabs and goes, or he gets like an early outlet pass. If you watch his eyes, like if you can see his eyes on the camera, he, his eyes are darting like constantly he's surveying, he's processing every single thing that's happening. He takes like a quick look behind in order to check out what's happening in terms of uh, trailers in terms, both defensively and for a potential like pick and pop the ability to like read early like screening actions. There, there were a couple of possessions in a row. So Taj McCall uh, was coaching Karen's yesterday. Taj McCall is a current player in the NBL for Karen's. Uh, and look, I don't know if he wants to get into coaching. I, I'd imagine he does based off of the fact that he did this. He has a chance to be like a really good coach. I think like his communication was really clear. Uh, he was really loud. He was like really, really on point. I felt like, calling out a couple of coverages here and there, like being being like a really active and clear coach that like really connected with his team. Uh, it, it was really, really impressive. And like you could say like, yeah, he's a teammate and everything. A lot of these guys are like new teammates for him because he was there last year and like, you know, Taron Armstrong wasn't there. Bobby Clinton wasn't there. Patrick Miller wasn't there. Like there, there, there were a number of new guys there and still he was communicating clearly and like had that connection with them in a really impressive way. But, like, you would see Taryn bring the ball up the court and Taj would, like, call something out. And Taryn was like, Taryn be like, no, like, run the, run the same thing again that we just ran. And uh, I think it happened in the second quarter. And they were running, like, a one-four low action where the first time, I think that it was, like, Taryn called for a screen to come up knowing that he wasn't going to actually take the screen. He knew that the backside defender in the left corner, his right corner was going to sag in a little bit and help. And he just immediately, as soon as he called for the screen and his man came up and he saw the guy tag in, he just shot it cross corner and was like, okay, we're good. And that was a three. And then the next time he said, no, we'll run it again. And then he actually took the screen this time and then like went and made a play that way. Like he knew exactly how to attack it from multiple different angles, from like different defensive looks each time. It was Taron Armstrong is one of the smartest basketball players I've seen like at that age play basketball. To me, the shooting is the big key. And we'll talk about that in a second. But his level of strength is the big differentiator for him now versus when he was at Cal Baptist the last two years. Uh, he was very thin and very skinny uh, as a freshman, especially he put on a little bit of weight going into last year. This year he is big, like yep. across the shoulders, across his arms, like through his chest. Like he has gotten much, much stronger and more physically capable of dealing with contact of dealing with uh, being able to keep guys on his hip and being able to uh, make plays and bring help to him defensively, force guys into rotation. He's a really, really impressive dude. The, sh- the shooting has to come, but like, I, I don't know. He-, he was the one where I was like, oh, th- this is the guy that like has really helped himself here. Yeah, I thought he looked really strong. So that's interesting because I, you know, he wasn't a guy I was super aware of like as a freshman. So to hear that his body has developed that way is really interesting. It was funny, and, and I'm not trying to like call out the broadcast at all, but they were like, man, Armstrong really likes the no look pass. And I'm like, 
No, I think he's using eye manipulation. And I know that's a buzzword for people, but it's a real thing, Sam. Yeah. Like there is a difference to me between a no look pass in that sense and what I would say is eye manipulation. And I almost screenshotted it and tweeted it out because he's looking here, holding the defender, knowing he's going with the pass to the baseline. And to me, that's the difference. If you're moving a defender with your eyes on purpose, that's eye manipulation. That's different than kind of the no look pass for show or whatever that like people like to talk about. And he did it multiple times, even on the law passes to Clinton. He's moving defenders. He's holding defenders. And I told you about, there's a transition. He sees where the defense is. He sees, he didn't even have the ball. He was playing off ball. He sees the flare screen for a shooter and his teammate didn't make the pass. But I saw that and I was like, this kid is processing things so quickly yep. that it's really impressive. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. Uh, the other guy that played point guard as a teenager and Taryn, I think is 20 or 21. Um, yesterday is Trenton Flowers. Uh, Adelaide lost by 26. He turned the ball over seven times, I think including four where he just got like ripped in the backcourt, like trying to bring the ball up the court by Parker Jackson Cartwright. And I think one other person got him once, if I remember correctly. Um, I'm going to try and be as diplomatic as possible when I say this. I think Trenton Flowers can be a really effective player. I think he can be effective in the NBL this year. It's not going to be a point guard. He's not a point guard. He doesn't have the handle to be a point guard yet. He's 6'7". His handle is high. And the real problem for him, I think, even beyond the handle, the handle's the real problem right now. Like, he, he just can't control the ball in the way that you have to in order to, like, bring the ball up the court and, like, initiate sets and everything against high-pressure defense. The big problem for him is he also doesn't really have the ability to take advantage of having a small guy guarding him right now. Like Parker Jackson Cartwright is a foot shorter than he is. He, he's a foot shorter. And there was never a point yesterday where he was like, Hey, bring the ball into me on the block. Like, come, come get me. I'm going to post up against uh, Parker Jackson Cartwright here. Like, come do this. Like here, we're going to go. Right. Uh, there was never a point where like he tried to like, you know, shoulder through him on drives again, like, cause the handle isn't strong enough. Um, it, it's, he, he, he doesn't have the ability to take advantage of his marginal gifts yet in one-on-one -on -one circumstances, which is how you have to win. When you play point guard, you have to either win in ball screens or in isolation. And he can't win in isolation yet because he can't control the ball. He can't win yet in, ball screens because like he can't really even get to the point where he's like running the ball screen yet how he can win now i, I want to go away from the negatives he can win by being like a secondary ball handler where if somebody like mitch mccarron or jason katie like or kadi runs a ball screen and he gets like a cross wing whip pass and the defense is manipulated and he doesn't have to worry about, you know, that initial like pressure on his dribble and he can just get downhill. I think he can win that way. I, I also think that like his shot is not terrible. I don't love it. 
I think that, you know, he has like a very like unnatural, like flick kind of to yep. it. And I worry it's very flat in terms of trajectory, but he has touch. And I think that you could work through that off of the catch. It also takes him like a bit of a second to like load into the shot. It feels like often. I feel like there is a road for him to be successful. And I just hope I I don't blame him for this either. I blame the people putting him in position to do this so far, be that, you know, the Adelaide coaching staff on some level for doing this, be that the um, people around him for convincing him that he's a point guard when he's not a point guard. I don't blame the kid. I I blame like those people more than anything. And they are making this much more difficult than it needs to be for him. I think we talked about this, Sam, what do you think the infatuation? Is it just because you get to control the ball? Cause he would still have good size playing off the ball. So I get it with some guys, right? Like, if you're 6'2", you want to be a point guard because you can't be a 6'2 wing. I understand yep. that. You're 6'7". You don't have to be a point guard. Actually, those secondary playmaking and attacking and ball handling skills seem are really valuable as an off-the-ball player. And you have the size to be that. Now, I'll say this, and I'm sure we'll talk about it at times as we go through draft guys and all that. If you've played with the ball in your hands your whole life, it's really hard to adjust. Like you just get used to that and it's hard. But, but not you to have do- to. That's, but you have that's to. part of like why yes. guys go from being five star players to not NBA players or guys go from being, you know, two star recruits to being NBA players. It's that adjustment to being able to play without the ball once you reach the highest level. So it's a piece of it. You, you just kind of have to do it, I think. And so that's what I just wonder if he's not being ex- receptive or being able to accept that, or if it's the people around him saying, Hey, you need to be a six, seven creator because that's going to get you drafted higher or whatever. And, and again, I, I don't want to go back to the negative, but I text you during the, I only saw the first half, but there was a couple defensive possessions too, where I text you. I was like, Sam, th- this, this was a little rough, man. Yeah, like, J- Justinian Jessup caught him a couple times off the ball. Yeah, it was, uh, it was not great. Yeah. And and he just got to learn from that. You know, one time he went over a screen and then he's getting ready to come right back off of it. You can't relax. You're going to guard dudes that are going to use a screen, use another backdoor. If you play it wrong, like you just got to be engaged and into it at all times. And you know, that's something he can learn, right? It's, it's not something that he can't grow into, but there's going to have to be some growth and there always is, but there's some real growth and, and maybe a hard conversation that comes from somebody that says, man, Trent, like you could be really, really good playing the role you laid out a few minutes ago for him offensively. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I I think that that's what has to happen. I'm not ruling him out by any stretch. Like, I, I think that he actually looked like a little bit bouncier and like a little bit like more explosive than what I expected athletically coming in. Um, he, he, you should not rule him out by any stretch of the imagination. There are real tools there. It's just that like right now, I, I don't in this role, like Taron Armstrong is a better prospect than he is, which is a wild statement, but is accurate. Now, like if he gets better at the wing role, 
Trenton just has like way more tools where he's like a teenager and like he can figure it out. But like he has to he has to figure that out. That That's what it has to be. He has to figure it out. Yep. And, and I, the people around him have to figure it out, I think, is the big thing. Like, don't don't keep banging your head against a wall to make something work when it's not working, because at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to be hurt is the kid and his, you know, quote unquote draft stock. Right. So please, you know, I'm trying not to be harsh. I'm trying to be realistic about the circumstance. And I would like to see his talents be utilized in a way that works better in a professional environment. It's okay that he's a teenager that can't play point guard in a good professional league. Yep. There aren't many that can. Like LaMelo Ball's team was fucking terrible in Illawarra. He was great, but like that team was not very good. Like Josh Giddy, even Adelaide was not great when Josh was there, even like it's hard to have a good young point guard run the show in a high level professional professional league And Trenton's a level below those guys in terms of like handle and craft and everything. It, it, it just needs to, you know, it's, some changes need to be made. Damn, these are important life decisions, like truly life decisions. And that's why when a kid decides to transfer at times or whatever, like I understand the selfishness that these kids make sometimes because they put in a lot of hard work and it truly is. They only have a short time for their earning power and all of that stuff. And in this case, the decision, the the selfishness decision or the, the, I have to make a decision what's best for me for Trenton Flowers needs to be to play off the ball. And those are, if, if he's not seeing that those around him need to see that and be real with him because he is a kid and maybe he can't see it, but there's gotta be people or someone or a few people that he really trusts their thoughts and their opinions. And they gotta be the ones to tell him that and say, Hey, you gotta be a little more receptive if he's not being receptive to, to do this off the ball. I, I will say, uh, I have not gotten the impression that he is um, not receptive to coaching. I will say. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I've not gotten the impression that he's like a bad kid at all. Yeah. And like, is like a problem kid. Like there's, that's not, that's not the reality of who he is from what I gather. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, Bryce, Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Tell the people everything they need to know. Yeah, so at Motor City Hoops on Twitter, if you happen to be a Pistons fan out there or want to listen to a podcast about the Pistons, we're actually recording tomorrow morning in uh, USA time, 7.30 p.m. or a.m. Eastern. And so the, the Pistons Pulse podcast with my guy, Omari Sanko, for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And I write some NBA draft stuff at Draft Dive Dress coverage for SI.com. Sam, you're the man. I appreciate you. Always have a blast when you have me on. Bryce is the best. Go follow all of Bryce's work. You'll be able to find it at Motor City Hoops over on Twitter. Uh, I will be back later this week with some podcasting plans that I don't quite have yet. Because, again, this is, in theory, my second day back from vacation. So I'm still getting everything together. I have a general outline of what the show is going to look like for the next like month or so. But I'm still formulating a few things. I do know that at some point, I want to do a bit more of a deep dive into the G League Ignite guys. 
Um, I might do that later this week, depending on if time allows. I think it should because tomorrow I have a window in the morning to really sit down and watch like the tape and get through everything I need to do in terms of pulling tape to be able to do like a dive into that. Like that will be really fun and enjoyable, hopefully for everybody um, with some tape and we'll do the whole thing like normal. But until then um, just keep it locked here on the feed. We'll have a little bit more information forthcoming on that, Uh, but there will be at least one, probably two more podcasts this week at the very least Uh, for Bryce Simon over in Kansas. I'm Sam Sini. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.